good morning, good evening, wherever you may be. Around the nation, around the world, you're listening to WCET.FM. Also, we simulcast on WCET 101.7, Columbia Talk in Columbia, South Carolina. We're also on Spotify, Twitter, TuneIn, Stitcher, CastBox, and all of the available uh, podcast apps that you can find on your smartphone. <laughs> this is the Supernatural Realm. I'm your host, Tim Roxbury, and my co-host, Chip Reichenthal, is, is on my, in my uh, passenger seat here. Chip, you there, buddy? <laughs> yeah, very excited for today, brother. <clears throat> and again, i got to hand it to you. You find the most fascinating and wonderful people. This is a huge day for us, you know, because you and I, we love this guy. <laughs> he's just he's just learning about that kind of by force now. <laughs> but we're happy to hang out with him. Today we have Dr. Gregory Little. And boy, oh boy, this is exciting. Uh, Dr. Greg Little, we're calling him Greg because we're hanging out today. <laughs> All our guests are Greg, but you know, yeah, that's right, just how right. we roll here. <clears throat> he is a psychologist turned explorer and documentary maker. Since 2003, Greg and his wife, Laura, have been actively searching the Bahamas for archaeological ruins that may be linked to Atlantis. He's working with the Edgar Casey organization in its search for Atlantis project. <clears throat> Along with archaeologist Bill Donato, the Littles have conducted wide explorations around Bimini, Andros and the Great Bahama Bank. <clears throat> I went to my living room yesterday. That was my big <laughs> travel. <clears throat> anyway, their explorations have been featured on the National Geographic Channel, the Learning Channel, MSNBC, Sci-Fi, Discovery, and the History Channel. <clears throat> Greg is co-author of the books Edgar Casey Atlantis, Mound Builders, Ancient South America, and People for the Web has over 30 other books in print in various areas of psychology. That's kind of my thing, see? So, yeah, I, I, I love this guy already. <laughs> anyway, Timmy, I will turn it to you uh, with the fantastic and wonderful uh, Dr. Gregory Little, who we're very excited to have today. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Greg. It's great to have you. Greg, your, your mic's muted, bud. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Your mic's muted, Greg. <laughs> oh, right. there we go. Yeah. Oh, I, I remuted my mute. That's what I did. <laughs> okay. Uh, I do that thanks, all the time. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me in, guys. I appreciate it very much. What an introduction. Um, couldn't have done better if I hadn't written it myself. Uh, <laughs> actually, I've written that myself, but that's maybe 10 years old or something, something like that. Uh, so I would update it a bit. But it's great to be on. You guys are great. Uh, great sense of humor. And I suspect none of the things we were talking about before this show started, we will talk about after this show okay. goes great. on. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've got 10 years to catch up on already. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I know quite a bit about um, uh, Tim there, and I don't know quite as much about Chip, but I'm real glad to be here, guys. It's great to have you. It's just thrilled yeah. to have you. Yeah, you'll know a lot about Chip before the show's <laughs> over. <laughs> anyway, yeah. brother, back to you. Yeah, as you know, Greg, this is a relaxed show. It's like, you know, old friends talking in a living room or a bar or whatever. So we have a good time here. And uh, it's, it's great to have you here tonight with us. Okay. 
Well, you know, the, I really start out a lot of this now. I don't have, I think we're going to talk about a new book and one that was done a couple years ago. But one of the things I want to start out with is that the main point that reason, I guess, that I got into all this right. is that what we have been told about the ancient world and what the mainstream has told us. Now, I believe for many, many years, but it's not the truth. We have not been told the truth. Uh, mainly in in archaeology, we're not told the truth in a lot of things, and I don't want to get into all those other things. We're here mainly talking about ancient history. So we simply haven't been told the true history. And there's another piece to it. If you have questioned what mainstream archaeology have said, then you are either a kook or you're a crank, or even (laughs) now they say all the time, oh, you don't believe uh, say, for example, that all Native Americans came from Siberian Asia right, right. to the Ice Age, then you're a racist. Yeah, it's so, like flirting with the standard model of physics. Uh, you know, anybody in physics will say, oh, it can't be anything outside that standard model. Exactly. And it's it. we just haven't been told the truth. And that's partly why I got into this some years ago. It was a very specific thing. Uh, that my wife and I got involved with through the Edgar Casey organization and with Andrew Collins. Uh, Andrew Collins is a British uh, author and researcher. I know you're going to have him on next month, mm-hmm. or I'm yeah. sorry, in September. Yeah, he's uh, been on before here too. We yes, had him on. Andrew is is brilliant, and oh, we love him. Our, our research into archaeology sort of began with with an interaction with him in 2001, uh, and we got into the that Atlantis search because Andrew showed a picture of a mysterious underwater formation that was first seen in the Bahamas in 1967. I'm sorry, it was 1968 when it was first seen and photographed, and it was supposed to be a huge circle of stones Hmm. underwater in the Bahamas and people, and it was supposed to be a multi-ring circle of stones, similar to like Stonehenge or Avebury. I mean, a huge circle of standing stones. Uh, And he showed this. No one had ever found it. I talked to a few people who supposedly had gone to look for it. They weren't able to find it. And I remember vividly telling my wife while Andrew was talking, you know, we could go find that thing. With today, and at that time, I had a pilot's license, still have it, but I don't fly it. I don't fly myself anymore. And I said, we could go down, and I know we could find this thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what really started our search. And then as we started looking for another strange mystery after another that had been published in the past, we started finding lots and lots of stuff. And that led us to do 25 trips into the Bahamas uh, most of which were on boats. We did a lot of aerial surveys. Uh, we did a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, we found 31 crash planes. I'll summarize wow. all that. 31 crash planes. Wow. Two of those are definite Bermuda Triangle planes. Two more probably are. Uh, the BBC actually did one of the very best shows and sent some parts that we found of a DC-3 to the Royal Air Force. Uh, and they actually took the parts and identified them and crawled into an identical plane and found where the part was. And they're the ones that said, okay, this is part of a plane that crashed in 1945 at DC-3 and had 32, 32 people. It was like the third event that happened in the Bermuda Triangle. Wow. So that was really our beginning in this. Um, I, before that, I'd had an interest in Native Americans and mound builders and American mounds. 
uh, and I started a project in the 80s of visiting mound sites, but I can't say at the time that I was looking into what archaeology said about right. the ancient world. At that time, I was more interested in documenting what was out there sure. in the map. So that's kind of a thumbnail of all that. Wow. Uh, we remain involved with the Casey organization. My wife actually is the uh, chairperson of the board of trustees of the Casey or of all three Casey organizations, which there's wow. Atlantic University, the ARE, which is the Association of Research and Enlightenment, and the other one is the Edgar Casey Foundation. Wow. So she's been a trustee for some years, but she became the chairman or chairperson since she's female. Boy, I uh, really want to meet your wife now. <laughs> I do. I'd like to have her on one of the shows, you know. Uh, she can do that. Uh, she doesn't do many of these. I've sort of been the face because I can talk in blurbs. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You know how people want sound bites and blurbs. That's why a lot of the TV shows like this because I could sit and just give a, a blurb, a real quick sound bite, and they love that stuff. They don't like depth. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we do, you know. I, I, at the time. I, we do her a good service. We, we would treat her with the greatest dignity and, and uh, in the fondest light. You know. oh, thank you. I, I got a quick question for you with regarding those crash planes because I saw something and on I got TV. a follow-up. Go ahead. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's a show I don't particularly like. My wife likes it. I'm not going, so I'm not going to say what it is and dog it. But they had scanned this area. It would have been the southern uh, leftmost part of the Bermuda Triangle, where they found these clouds. Is that what you were thinking too, Tim? Because he's Something not similar to it. They were hex, uh, hexa, hexa, hexagons, uh, clouds which to them, and there were uh, six of them in this scan and that area. And it led them to believe that it might be something called air bombs, which is basically some uh, air pressure that funnels down, hits the ocean water hard, and creates these waves that uh, nobody sees coming, yeah, but are uh, big enough or disruptive enough to uh, uh, sink these ships or even planes disrupt the flight of planes and they're thinking maybe that could help explain you know some of the bermuda triangle mystery yeah i see your face it was my face too but i figured i'd ask you because you were there <laughs> i mean yeah i think the list has about 250 planes on it now the official list and i would say out of 250 uh if that's happened it might have happened once maybe but uh we've had we had a lot of weird experiences down there with weather uh and electrical phenomena and electrical problems on boats which we all and we we got to where we would take three we would take a mothership then we took our boat uh, which had two engines on it and lots of electronics and then we took a third boat uh, that had two engines on it also, which we pulled just to make sure we had backups to our backups. Uh, while we were at this particular site in probably the same area that you just described, uh, Chip, which is down there in the, uh, the you said it was the southeast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, part the, of the triangle, furthest yeah. southeast part. Mm -hmm. uh, we were down in that area. And while they were, while my wife that was the first time she scuba dove that I didn't to go down into a plane that we had found. 
by the way, there was a shark in the uh, cockpit of the plane. We got great film of that. When the camera went in, there was a (laughs) shark that then took off. Uh, But out of that plane, uh, I was on the surface and I was recording on the camera and talking to them while they were doing this. And a violent storm came through and I took a video camera and I filmed five water spouts instantly form and come down around us on this boat was the strangest thing they didn't know anything about it on the bottom they were about 30 feet down had no idea what was going on but it was a violent thunderstorm came rolling through these five water spouts came around and then they started bringing parts up from this plane including the pilot's pants the pilots, the and most of it was eaten away, but what was left were the pockets, and in the pockets we found the passport and change. Uh, so we were able to identify the plane and the date that it crashed and all that. A huge stack of baby diapers came up uh, out of the plane. But no baby was killed in this, I will say that. I mean, that We immediately thought, oh my God. But I will say this, baby diapers being underwater for 25 years in salt water are just as perfect and pristine. Are they really? Wow. them out as when they went down. It's under, And the, the pilot's passport was still in good condition. Uh, the coins that were in his pockets, uh, the U.S. coins, uh, the salt water had eaten away uh, almost all of the exterior of the coins. So our coins don't do very well in salt water. But as soon as we got up and started pulling all these thing, these pieces up, we thought, man, some people died in this, and we said a prayer. And when we said the prayer, right at the end of it, the storm was gone by then. Wow. But right at the end of the prayer, on the, not our boat, but the one that one of the Bahamian captains brought along, we heard the rear engine on that go and that sound is the engine going down into the water. It's going from an upward position to down. There was nobody on the boat. Oh and we all God. looked at it. So he went back and he said, I don't know what that was. And he put it up, you know, back up. And then as soon as he got on our boat, it went all the way down into the water again. He went back and he put it up and he sat on the boat for a minute and it went down again. So he put it up and then he had to disconnect the battery. Oh my so God. then we got back on this big mothership. It was a liveaboard boat, and the entire electrical system, except for the motors, was gone. The generator was gone. The air conditioning was gone, which was terrible at that time mm. not to have the air conditioning. The uh, refrigeration was gone. They had a refrigeration device on it. It was gone, and none of the electricity worked, and none of the lights in the boat worked then either. On the way down there in that boat, Uh, It went seven knots. We took a 14-hour, seven-knot trip, incredibly uncomfortable because there was not a single seat on this, a research boat. We didn't have a single chair except the one the captain sat in. So we sat on the back. We were surrounded by thunderstorms all the way down, but it never rained on us. And I called my wife to the back of the boat, and then I called one of the Bahamians with me, and I said, look out there. And so they looked, and they said, what is that? And we watched as these red, white, green, and blue balls of light formed in the sky around us would last three or four seconds and then turn off. And then they'd pop up in a different area. And this went on for hours. It was was very, very peculiar. This was all on the same trip. Timmy, road trip. I was just thinking, (laughs) as, as you said this, Greg, 
I was going to ask you, do you think there's a USO or UFO connection with the triangle? And then you said about those lights. That's incredible. Well, it is. Those, I, I believe that it's related to plasma energies and so on. As far as the USOs, I know, I understand it. We actually went to Autec. Uh, there's a long story we have there. Uh, I don't. Autec is the Atlantic Underwater Testing uh, and Research uh, facilities. There's seven of them on Andros Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, they test uh, submarines and submarine uh, warfare. You see helicopters there. We were filming uh, with uh, it was National Geographic on the shore there once, and a submarine came flying up out of the ocean behind us while the guy was filming, and it just went right back down to the bottom again. Just weird stuff like that happens. Uh, I accidentally went into Autec one night uh, and was greeted by several armed guards who cursed at us and yelled at us and aimed their uh, semi their automatic weapons at us oh, and screamed oh. to get out but there was no other way for us to get in through a reef we had to go through uh into their area we didn't really know where we were that's another long story mm-hmm. uh, actually i should be dead uh, <laughs> that's part still, of the story. still haven't talked us out of that road trip that timmy and i are taking <laughs> well you got I, I, sometimes so but you, you did yeah. mention plasma and i first of all i thank you for that it's the fourth what state of matter and mm-hmm. nobody ever talks about it, it and, you know but it can explain a lot of things because you remind us of, of andrew a little bit when he was on the show regarding the atlantis there in the bahamas because as he's researching it it's not like he's a full-on believer in this. Right. He's uh, skeptical about everything, taking all the boxes to make sure, because he's not going to make any hopeful statements <laughs> or, yeah. or something that regards, you know, his personal hope uh, until it's actually met. I mean, you guys are taking all the boxes. But the mentioning plasma, I think, to answer Timmy's question, uh, is fascinating because we don't talk about that enough. So many things could get answer it if we had a better understanding you know uh as as just regular old people you know not not physicists or engineers uh, about you know plasma yeah well plasma it, it is the fourth state of matter andrew's book called light quest i wrote the introduction to it and in it talked about plasma and plasma research that was done a lot of it was done in missouri in the 1970s in the area where my wife is from in missouri new madrid missouri Uh, And her family, a lot of family members saw these odd things in the sky back in the 70s. Uh, And I talked to a lot of people up there that had the experiences. But, okay, so the the theory about that is plasma is not just a um, ball of charged energy or particles that are charged. It is, uh, there's an intelligence to it. That's Mm -hmm. the theory Andrew also has. Uh, It responds and interacts with humans uh, and because it's responsive and interactive, that's where the intelligence comes from. And that theory was not ours. A, the chairman of the physics department at Southeastern Missouri State University, his name was Harley Rutledge, uh, he is the one that said that these plasmas have an intelligence. Uh, and that was through a series of hundreds of sightings in Missouri uh, in the 70s and 80s. They're still going on up there, by the way. Could that be the quantum mechanics, uh, spooky action? Well, and yeah, it, it, yeah it, it, all, it all ties together. We don't really know enough about it, and I can't tell you I know enough about it to, to speak too intelligently beyond what I've done. I can bring this up, though, uh, and it, it ties in the Native Americans. Uh, the shaman 
uh, and the medicine people used to do a, you can call it a trick, and if you actually read these old, the old descriptions of it by the ethnographers that would try and explain everything the medicine men and shaman did uh, as a trick, uh, they would t- the natives would take a pouch, a leather pouch, and they'd put quartz crystals in it. Mm-hmm. And they'd be in a totally darkened a tent or in a cave. And if you do this, if it's totally dark and you start grinding that pouch and you grind those quartz crystals in it, you will see these little balls of light fly out. You can actually wow. do this yourself. If you've got quartz crystals at home, mm-hmm. The reason you do a le- you have a leather pouch is you will cut the heck out of it. There you go. You need two uh, and go into your bathroom tonight. This is going to sound <laughs> weird. You're going to you have people that will do this. If mm-hmm. there's people listening, here's what you do: get the two biggest quartz crystals you've got. the The rougher shape they are, the better. And you don't want to use your really expensive ones that are you know have really smooth sides. And I'll use some rough ones if you don't mind. Uh, breaking some little shards off of. So take the two quartz crystals, put on a pair of gloves. You've got to wear gloves to do this. Go in to your bathroom. Do it when it's totally dark. Fill your bathtub up about halfway full of water. And then put a quartz crystal in each hand, stick it down under the water, and rub those two together as hard and as fast as you can. And what you will see is light refraction, and you will see enough light refracting that it can light up your bathroom. Wow. That is partly why, that's the story I told on Art Bell the first time that I was on that show. And Art, you know, those long commercials they have, like seven minutes or so, and it's always a prostate medicine for us men. (laughs) (laughs) But during that seven-minute break, Art came back, and he said, well, let me tell you, you know that deep voice he mm-hmm. has? Uh-huh. Yep. I, did, I did exactly what you said. I got two quartz crystals, and I went into my bathroom, and I filled that tub up, and I turned the lights out, and I rubbed them together. And do you know what happened? And in a very weak voice, I said, uh, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he went, yes, it did. He said, I couldn't believe it. It did work. And I think that's why that particular show was very successful for me, as I told you before. Yeah. Uh, do, you, uh, do you think the water's something about the water? Because I think, look, the shaman and everything, they understand water has memory and all that stuff. It's fine. I'll just take the simple explanation. It, the, the little balls of light, first of all, they're not just uh, sparks because sparks aren't going to do it underwater but what they are is they're little plasmas and they are refracting in that water it's the refraction of it in the water that creates so much light now you can see it in total darkness if you simply do that in total darkness the reason you wear gloves is you get lots of little pieces of the crystals that are breaking off tons of little pieces and shards and you don't want those to get under your skin you don't want them to cut you but it's a great little experiment that I, I recommend people to do, and it'll tell you the power of those things. So the natives believe that by doing this, you could actually connect with the spiritual world, and it's something that they did that they believe that it somehow modified your consciousness. It probably does modify your consciousness mm-hmm, a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's kind of our belief system. You know, we, we, we like some of the things that the uh, indigenous cultures, you know, saw in the elements that everyday people just don't notice, you know, yeah. 
and you see some very cool things about you know earth and air and water and and well, that rock that. and stone being alive and you know I'm mean, just all this. That's, that's the key right there and it was derided we don't Western civilization derides that as animism mm-hmm. and Native Americans believed that everything essentially came from spirit or from the same thing. And actually, that's what modern physics tells us, that we're made as stars. Everything is made of the same thing. We all come from the same source. Yes, exactly. They they knew it thousands of years ago. Right. They used the term spirit, that it's all spirit. And physics might call it something else, quantum mechanics. And, you know, it used to be atoms, but we know there's smaller stuff. Oh, and it's going to get smaller and smaller until there's nothing left. And that's basically right. what is telling us now. Yeah. But anyway, they believed everything was spiritual. The earth was the most primordial form of spirit that existed. Mm-hmm. That's, and we are made of earth, too. They recognized that the human body uh, came from earth, ultimately. And it had to return there. And that's partly why they did cremation. But we had another soul that came from the stars. And that soul came into this physical body. The physical body was animated by the spirit from the soil. And that, that, that spirit uh, from the soil is called the life soul. And then there is the free soul. The life soul is tied to that physical part of the body. And it returns to the soil. But let's talk about some other things before we get into that whole spiritual idea. Sure, sure. Rocks are solidified forms of spirit. Crystals are more purified forms of crystallized spirit. Water is flowing spirit. Fire is a type of spirit. All of it is spiritual energy to them. And every all life comes from spirit. And so that's why they revered life. If you take a life, then you are supposed to give it some reverence and you honor it and you try and return it back to its primordial state. So they had a different belief system. Uh, Ethnographers called it animism and derided it. But basically, I think modern physics says the same thing. I think it's basically all the same. It's just worded differently. Yeah. 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 Uh, I got a because I've I got a question for you, but I want to make sure that I you know that Timmy has some questions. I'm sure too. <laughs> So I, I want to see if Timmy has a question at the moment. Yeah. Uh, do you think the closest belief system to Native Americans, I'm thinking maybe Wicca? Is that... Is that I'm sorry, I didn't hear it. Say you, it? Think, you think Wicca is sort of like... Oh, the, that uh, kind of yeah, there's a, there's a form of... Yeah, there's a form of it, uh, of Wicca, the same kind of belief about Mother Earth and Gaia. Uh Native Americans had white witches and uh, they had dark witches. Mm -hmm. And their idea is it's very similar to types of Wicca, but in general they tried to stay away from the more negative ones. If you did that, you were uh, putting yourself at risk. risk, If If you went to a dark shaman, or a dark medicine man or woman, you were putting your, your soul at risk. Uh, and so the way that they visualized this, that, that you have to get into their whole belief system. There's a, it's a three-part world. There's an upper world, a middle, middle world, and a lower world. We're in the middle world, of course. 
Uh, and there's a pull or some sort of force that attaches all three worlds together. They call it, some call it the world tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, Judaism has an idea about it too, but it's the world tree. And what a shaman would do and what a medicine man would do is he would vibrate that world tree. He would vibrate the pull that held this the three worlds together into one. And when he vibrated it, it was like an elevator that would allow him to access the upper world or the lower world. So there's forces in the lower world that usually are snakes and things that live in the water. The upper world are birds and things like the thunderbird and things in the sky. Those are considered powerful, positive forces. The ones below the surface in general are powerful, negative forces. But a shaman could access any of those worlds by shaking that pull. Mm -hmm. And how you shake the pull is through rituals. The rituals are dancing and chanting, uh, smoke, using feathers, using drums, Anything that is repetitive, that is one way. They also use hallucinogenic drugs. I might as well get that out of the way. It's true. We know that. Uh, They did use hallucinogens. Uh, I'm not saying that because I'm in favor of people doing it, nor am I telling people not to do it. No, they they felt that they could be closer to spirit under that state of mind. Absolutely. And just like some people have a bad trip from time to time, uh, shaman would sometimes descend into the lower world and see things that were horrifying and frightening and bad things would happen. But th- their view of it was that this, the world was connected with this pole and that they could vibrate this pole and move up and down. And that also allowed them to have some control over the populace. This, po- this control over the populace is one of the things that is being used, and I think correctly, to explain how they built mounds and earthworks and how in South and Central America and why they did, why in South and Central America they built these massive megalithic structures that took an enormous amount of effort from the populace. Uh, Places like Saxuaman or Teotihuacan in Mexico, uh, any of the pyramid structures in the Yucatan, which basically the Yucatan, all the times we've been there, we've found undiscovered cities and pyramids everywhere. My wife and I made a trip to uh, a place called Piedras Negras in Guatemala. Hmm. Uh, And it's like one of those trips that people would take in the 1800s where you'd hire a group of people and they would take you in. That's exactly what we did. Uh, There's no other way to get in except by boat and there are small boats. It's whitewater. We did a film on that and that, that film actually did really, really well. Uh, but while we were there, we, everywhere we went, uh, everywhere, it's just un, uncovered, uh, not uncovered, pyramids that are covered, that have not yet been uncovered. They're everywhere. The whole Yucatan is but, almost like a solid city. But the purpose for these mounds, all these mounds, to these people, what would they accomplish? Well, there's, several, there's several purposes, but the motivation uh, of the community to put that much effort into it. It's like if somebody asks you, hey, come on down, come on downtown and help us build this giant stone pyramid that is going to take us years to do. Uh, and it's going to probably uh, make you a disabled person the first few weeks you do. Would you do it? 
Probably not. Most of us would not willingly go and start doing this for nothing just because we're being ordered to by the rulers. Uh, but these folks did it, and they did it willingly. So the purpose, it's believed, was it was a way to control the populace, and they did it through control of rituals, particularly death rituals. And the death rituals are what determine what happened to your soul and the soul of your loved ones after death. That, if you really believe in life after death, what happens to your soul after you die is of paramount importance to you. So you would be very willing to do things in this life that would ensure that you would have a good afterlife. Because afterlife is forever. This life, everybody knows, is not forever. So it's believed that they controlled the populace and had them do these things because the populace thoroughly bought into the idea that their soul... And their future was determined by the rituals that were performed by the elite. So uh, these these places had several these places had several purposes. Uh, one I've really focused on is the death ritual. But we know too, like with Native Americans, they had rituals for the harvest every year, the the busk ceremony when the corn came in. It's well known. They had rituals they performed at the summer solstice and the equinoxes and all that. Uh, but my interest has mainly been the death ritual that sent the life soul to the, not, not the life soul, the free soul to the stars. And wh how they did it, when they did it, what the rituals were, and how they would erect mounds and earthworks to, to assist the soul to make the leap to the star. So, and the star actually was, the first star was Orion's nebula, uh, which is below the three belt stars of Orion. It's a fuzzy uh, nebula called Messier 42. Uh, and that's now well established, even in mainstream American archaeology now. The mound builders believed that after death, the soul leapt to this Orion's nebula, Messier 42. It had to happen three days after death. Uh, or you could store the bones of the deceased until a specific time period, but it had to happen only when Orion was sinking below the western horizon just before dawn. So there's a window, it's like a three-month window period. And that's all called the Path of Souls ritual, very well laid out and established in mainstream American archaeology. The same belief about... Orion's Nebula was held by the Maya, and they called it Shilbaba. Uh. Shilbaba was Orion's Nebula, and they believed that the soul went there. Now, that's only the first part of it. Graham Hancock's new book, which came out just a few months ago, uh, which has been on the New York Times bestseller list, and it's called America Before, uh, in it, he says for the first time that he realized that the Egyptian beliefs about Orion— uh, are paralleled by everything that Native Americans believed in those in South America, in yeah. South America, that they all share the same belief system. Now, why is an interesting question. That's where the new book with Andrew, the Denise of Origins, comes in. Mm -hmm. But we won't get into that yet. So uh, with uh, this Path of Souls idea, they would erect mounds and earthworks. Earthworks are lines of embanked earth. The largest, most complex earthworks on Earth, the most impressive geometric earthworks 
on Earth are in Newark, Ohio, which is wow. about. I knew there was something about Ohio, Timmy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> packed with Indian mounds and earthworks. There oh, is wow. a circle. Uh, there's one formation called the Circle and Octagon, which is a large circular embankment, perfectly flat in the center. Mm-hmm. The circle is made of a wall of earth that bends around 30 acres. The wall is about 16 feet high, forms a perfect circle. And then it connects to an octagon, 50-acre octagon made of walls of earth, about 16 feet tall. Uh, And, of course, you've got the eight sides to the octagon. And at the entrance, the eight sides don't touch each other. There's a little opening. Right on the inside, there's a truncated pyramid of earth. Now, this thing is, I just said the size. We took Andrew Collins there, and Andrew said you could get eight or ten Stonehenges in the one circle. Right. The Roman Colosseum would, you could put three Roman Colosseums in the octagon. And these things are incredible. But, but there's another circle there that encloses 50 acres. It has an interior moat to it. It's got these walls of earth about 10 feet high around it. It is identical in size to Avebury in England. In the center of that circle, giant circle, perfectly flat on the inside, is a uh, effigy mound of an eagle laying on its back. There's only one opening into this. Uh, and then once you once you start looking at these, then you start saying, how can these things be used? What are the rituals? When are they used? And are they aligned to certain stars? And that's where all this Path of Souls work comes in. Now, that's a very complicated site, which actually I haven't even touched the surface of it because it's far more complicated than I said. And the truth is, no matter how much you explain these geometric earthworks, you cannot possibly get an idea of what they are till you stand there and look at it and you go, oh, my God, I just had no idea. There's no way you can explain it to somebody to where they can really understand what it is. These well, things- next, next time you go, Timmy and I want to be with you. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, yeah, uh, road trip. Greg, have you, have, you been a, uh, have you been a serpent mount? Uh, many times, yes. Yeah. Serpent Mound. Uh, we actually did tours for the Casey organization. Uh, the first one we did had 104 people on it. Wow. Uh, and we, we, um, I wrote a book in 1990 called People of the Web, and in it I told a story about Serpent Mound that this famous guy Robert Harner had. Uh, and it was, he was at Serpent Mound in the winter. And there was no one there, and he sat down in this one bend in the Serpent. Serpent Mound is a quarter-mile-long mm. effigy mound of a serpent on the top of this large uh, uh, meteor strike in uh, near Hillsborough, Ohio. Mm. But um, Harner's watched leaves walk up the side of this hill. And what I mean is a pile of leaves would come up like somebody stepping up and another pile would come up and like step after step after step. And he, and he was thinking to himself, I should have brought my camera and he jumped up and he, he, he started running. He took three or four steps and he said, it won't matter. I'll never get there anyway and get back. (laughs) All that story, it made some time life books and so on. So when we, so this is a long way to get to what happened. So we did the first four for the Casey organization with 104 people. Serpent Mountain was the last place we went to. Uh, and 
I don't, I don't meditate with the groups. And we had a guy with the ARE is very well known, John Van Auk, and he's one of the directors at the ARE. He took these hundred and some people down to where the head is, and the head has got an open mouth, and it's like it's swallowing an egg. And they all went out and sat in a serpent, which you're not supposed to do. So meanwhile, I went to this place where this exact same spot where Robert Harner had his experience, and it was actually November. Mm. So there were leaves on the ground, and the reason I'm saying this is there had to be leaves on the ground for leaves to walk up a hill. Right. So I sat there, and I never even thought about it. And I watched the exact same thing that Harner experienced. These leaves swirled up like a little mini, uh, like a little mini tornado. They'd swirl up and come down, and then one alongside would swirl up and come down. And this went on for as long as the people meditated. I didn't say anything because <laughs> they were in a meditation. Wow! Uh, and it, I had it happen one other time, and I took some people there to watch it. It was always in the, um, and so I'm. Ex- Harner said it's a mystical place and it, it's a special place right. and energies and so on. And yes, I think it is. Now, as the little scientist background in me, my master's is in experimental psychology. So I'm always trying to look at the, you know, what's the, what are the, um, uh, the variables going on here? And so I figured, okay, it's a weird place in the hill. It's like a little <laughs> rut coming up. And there must be some wind movements and so on. It's the time of the year the leaves are dry and they're jumping up, you know, they're flying up. So I figured that's probably it. But it's definitely a special place. These places have energy and there is power associated with them. Subtle energy is the term uh, some physicists use. And these Mm -hmm. subtle energies do affect us mentally. Some people, though have no i believe it has to do with how much magnetite is in the brain i wrote that back in 1990 and here you go let me tell you let me tell you the proof i say skeptics people that don't believe anything and they've never had experiences it's because they don't have any magnetite in their brain i love that okay because we're on the subject of psychology i'm I'm gonna ask this question that i promised i'd ask uh, only because it might change the topic a little and then timmy We'll have the next question because I don't want to uh, hog this. Um, you were an experimental guy. I was a, a psychopathology and I was a radical. I was an R.D. Lang guy, not oh, a, a, you know, the neo, 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 neo Freudian uh, because that's where the action is. And as an experimentalist, that's, you know, we're kind of on the, on the same mind in a way. So I want to ask you this kind of tough question. One of the, be- when I was, one of the best classes I ever took in the mid-70s was culture and psychopathology. And they had this example of a tribal group, I believe it was in New Guinea, but it could have been uh, shamanistic or indigenous uh, somehow, uh, where there was a woman who had a psychotic condition they called running amok, which is basically, you know, uh, uh, schizophrenia, just, you know, really blown out. Uh, she was acting against people, destroying her property. She was doing all these things. So they took this woman who was what we would consider crazy, <laughs> and uh, they didn't blame her for her behaviors because of this condition. Uh, they believed that she had been uh, somehow uh, taken by this spirit of the blowing wind. You know, it was not an evil spirit. It was not a positive spirit was just an element all right so there's no good and evil here there's no uh it's your fault that you're sick (laughs) what they did is they surrounded the entire community around this woman 
and they prayed and they chanted and the medicine man would lead this thing and the entire community came together and within a three-month time period this woman in essence was cured you know and and it makes you think <laughs> you know and there was a pattern of this in uh, not just in this tribe in New Guinea but uh, other indigenous tribes uh, where this is what they do and they basically cured a psychotic condition in, in this woman uh, and because of that I, I just became so fascinated by the possibilities and and some of that is in some of your books and that's why I, I wanted to ask you because you're an experimental guy but you're also uh, incredibly benevolent and positive you know and you the people that you talk to in your practice you talk to as people mm -hmm. you don't talk to them as labels and you know look I, I have a great appreciation for that I it you know I'm disillusioned from from you know that uh, that system uh, but you're you're building it up mm -hmm. so I wanted to ask you based on this example uh, how how you see that as opposed to um, you know if you think there's something wrong with you you go to somebody smarter than you that gives you this label and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that was my thing the power of suggestion and self-fulfilling prophecy in in personality uh, because you'd rather be right than out of pain <laughs> or out mm -hmm. of an argument um, well I probably used the same textbook you did <laughs> <laughs> I think that that was probably undergraduate abnormal psychology. I, I think that's probably what it was. Probably like psych 30. It was a 3000 level course, I think, when <laughs> I took it. Um, and um, uh, our society sees everything that w we have this scale of normality, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. we talk about normal in, in the treatment programs that I'm involved with. We do talk about normal and people say, what's normal? Nobody what knows what's normal is. Well, the truth is we do. When you go to the doctor and they run blood tests, what they do is they give you a printout and on that printout there's a range of normal you're either in that range or you're not if it's out of the range then they consider you abnormal uh they don't really know what it is and the further out of range it is the more abnormal it is and that's that's kind of what normal is normal is what's within an accepted range uh some societies tolerate people that are outside the normal more than others. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that's true. Some some areas of the country tolerate things differently too. Sure. We have yeah. that happening today a lot. Yeah. Uh, so and different countries, people love to say, "I'm my expertise now. My real uh, professional expertise is criminal justice." Mm -hmm. People like to say that we are the harshest country in the world. Uh, because we incarcerate the most, but the truth is we're not the harshest country no, in not. the world. Uh, we are far, far from far that. From yeah. The harshest countries in the world have extremely low rates of of uh, reported crime and extremely low rates of uh, probation and parole. We give people loads and loads and loads of chances here. Uh, and it's because, to some extent, we, we tolerate what's considered to be abnormal or outside normal limits. Uh, I will say that with things like schizophrenia and so on, um, I, I'm in favor of if the person wants to try the medication, and if it works, great. If it doesn't work, do something else. Uh, it works some of the time. Uh, all, all those medications cause 
long-term terrible side effects. Oh, sure. Find, if there's some alternative, I'm always in favor of the alternatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, in my years and years, I, I told you before we started this, I spent five years in a, uh, sounds like I was one of the inmates, five years in a uh, prison mental health or a psychiatric unit uh, working there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's very sad. It, it's ext- it is. And you learn a lot, too. And Yeah, yeah you learn a lot. And... Uh, I actually got out of direct um, dealing within prisons because I just couldn't take the uh, some of the negativity. And it wasn't negativity from the inmates necessarily. No, no. It was <laughs> <from the> staff. <laughs> and yes. Final straw with me was when uh, an inmate going through the DTs who had just come in, delirium tremens, mm-hmm. who was an alcoholic, and uh, the officers in the facility beat him to death. Um, oh my God. trial for it. There were three, there's a long involved story. Uh, and I was, um, uh, a director of, a uh, the drug and alcohol treatment programs at the time. The inmate wasn't in my program, but the, the beating was witnessed by one of my counselors and several of the inmates. Uh, and it was three hung juries and then they all got their jobs back. One of them wound up in the federal system. They all got raises and, my counselor left because he was afraid he was going to get killed. Uh, and oh my God. the inmates uh, we had to protect. But it's a long, involved story. So um, when I start talking about mental health, uh, I, I kind of get sad. Because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I'm, well, yeah. The, the, my schizophrenics, when I was teaching, <laughs> you know, they were my brothers and sisters, right? Yeah. But they're assimilating into a society that doesn't want them. The, the NIMBY factor, not in my backyard, you know. Absolutely. Oh, I heard, I heard he's this, or I heard he's that. So, it, you know, and that's what breaks my heart. That's what kind of took me out of the system because I, I understood them. You know, they were, I could call them friends, but I couldn't do that, you know. But in my heart, they were. Yeah. And Native, Native Americans and most tribal groups are very tolerant of anyone uh they have different concepts of uh property ownership different concepts of say the distance that we have like body image distance and how close we can get to each other Mm, uh and they can be much more blunt uh i think our bluntness uh, has increased since we can do it anonymously on the internet. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Before yes. that, uh, we were probably, uh, appeared to be, at least in, in public, a little more tolerant of others. But in general, I think Native Americans and any tribal group uh, is far more tolerant of people who are different, whatever different means, all kinds of differences, yeah. whether it's gay, LGBT, or whether it's a mental illness, uh, or whether it's a physical disability or anything else, they are they are much more tolerant. We yeah. pretend to be, but what I don't. Do we do we do pretend to be, but look, right, you know, we we don't want to see them out of sight, out of mind. Even myself, it's like when I said that, you know, I just got sad and got to the point to where I just couldn't take it anymore. It's true, I, you know, it's like I can't be here anymore. Yeah, it was but, affecting me, but it's the exact same phenomenon, NIMBY, not in my backyard. I wanted to yeah. get out of that backyard. But but you wrote this book, and, you know, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to mention that or not. You can, uh, but it is kind of beheld in, in the field now, I, and there's a lot of benevolence in it, and I just wanted to personally, as somebody who has been disillusioned from that system, yeah. thank you. 
you know, because well, it you. means the world. It's that book's really called good. Freedom to Change. That's that's okay. and that's it's an outcome of or an outgrowth of uh, millions of people using our other books and getting a lot of feedback, and then uh, deciding to apply some really important concepts to just regular people. Uh, that's what that book is about. And yeah, you have the link on your on the posting that you created. <laughs> You're costing um, me a fortune today, by the way, because I'm going to buy a bunch of your stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> After this, give me an address, and we'll send you some. <laughs> I got to uh, send you some. It's my birthday in three days anyway. Uh, we can get them to you by then. Okay. One, one more quick question, and then I really want to turn it over to poor Tim here. Um, but uh, I, I want to take uh, post-traumatic stress disorder as an example. Well, it used to be shell shock. For yeah. our, our servicemen and women who uh, come back, and boy, there's a lot of it in this day and age. And but my question is, when they called it shell shock, it sounded like they earned it or deserved it. But now it's <laughs> post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah. you know, which automatically gives them that NIMBY factor. Yeah, and well, forces people into tough love it, that doesn't work, or you should be over this by now, you know. Get over uh, it. Snap out of it. Yeah, it's fine. I'd, I'd, we didn't talk about this. It's funny you brought that up. Uh, back uh, about uh, five years ago, I was asked to do this, and we did. We generated uh, workbooks for PTSD for mm. both the military, for oh. VAs, and for uh, actually what they are calling refugees. Uh, so we generated a men's and a woman's version. That was called that is called breaking the chains of trauma. Uh, and then we generated this military one, which my father is still alive. He's 94, he's a World War II vet, served mine, in the South Pacific. He's 98 right now, oh, yes. Oh, where did he serve at? Um, he was in Germany. Okay, uh, my dad was in the South Pacific, flying in PBYs. Wow. Uh, wow. Picking up down pilots and machine guns. Yeah, my dad was Air Force, too. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I used some of my dad's experiences and had pictures of it in the book, the one for the military. Uh, is called Battling Shadows, and those are used at about 20 VAs now. And then our uh, uh, PTSD book, which it's really trauma treatment, and we're calling it treatment because if you don't call it treatment, well, the facilities won't use it. Oh, really? Uh, so you have to you have the facilities provide treatment, so you have to call it treatment, or they can't use it. There right. you go. Makes so sense. it's all that's all kind of a word game, but yeah, all that's my real area. That's what I do professionally. Uh, treatment of uh, anyone that's had any kind of trauma, uh, and we specialize somewhat in veterans. Uh, there's actually specialized in the United States where veteran, particularly Vietnam War veterans, have gotten into trouble. So there's specialized courts that they go to. So we have a special book for them that they use in those courts to keep out of jail and keep out of prison. Long involved stuff. Uh, can't believe we first years where we've talked about any of this. You literally brought me to tears. So now I'm going to mute my mic so I can have a good cry. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, I mean it means it's so meaningful. It oh. really is because I I understand that system, but I really understand what you're doing with it. Thank and, you. And uh, it's beautiful. I'm going to turn it over to I'm mute my mic now. <laughs> uh, you can mute your mic because we're going to go on break. You are listening to the Supernatural Realm with our guest. And we'll be right back right after this.
WCETFM, where the fun never ends. So you love talk radio, then you'll love TalkStreamLive.com. TalkStream Live is always on 24-7 with the best streaming talk shows. Find your favorite talkers and discover some new ones. It's free, readily available online or on mobile with any smartphone or tablet. Finding your favorite talk shows all in one place has gotten a whole lot easier. Just go to TalkStreamLive.com. Be sure to download the free apps from Google Play or the iTunes App Store. At Armstrong, we're proud of the great customer service we provide. Our hard work has been nationally recognized. Armstrong has received the 2012 Best Customer Service Award for service excellence among independent cable operators. From our blue booties to our 24-7 support, right, our customer service sets us apart from other providers. That's the Armstrong experience. Armstrong. One wire, infinite possibilities. What is the supernatural realm exactly? Why do people have paranormal or mystical experiences? There's some science behind it they're not looking at. Why do some people have negative encounters and others don't? What are the best methods to use and is there some new truth to them? We'll ask these questions on the hit radio show, Supernatural Realm with Tim Roxbury, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern with your co-host Chip Reichenthal. Supernatural Realm, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 7 to 9 Eastern, leading into Michael Vera's Late Night in the Midlands at 9, right here on WCETFM, because that's where the action is. WCETFM, where the fun never ends. by Paranormal Talk Radio, you'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. The Supernatural Realm on WCET.FM. Also on WCET 101.7 FM, Columbia Talk in Columbia, South Carolina. And we're back with our special guest. Oh, man, we got, he's a wealth of, of knowledge and information. His name is Greg Little, and uh, we're back with him for the second hour. Chip, are you there with us, buddy? 
I am. I'm still crying, though. <laughs> now, I mean, it's just so I, I understand the depth of what he's doing, and I, I just, I can't, I can't stop. So it's, it's all you for a little while, brother. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's been a great one hour, and even going to be uh, a greater two hour with, with uh, Greg. We covered a lot of, a lot of things, and I hope our listeners got uh, something out of this first hour. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been great. Um, Greg, is there anything else that you'd like to say? I know your your bio at the beginning was a little outdated. Um, is there anything that you would like to add to that that you've been doing? Um, well, am I here? Yeah. Okay, I can't I can't tell if I'm muted or not. <laughs> I can't good. hear myself. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, I I I don't know what to say. Um, there's just so many areas that I could talk about. I am just interested in going wherever you guys want to go with this. Uh, Native Americans and mounds and the history of the Americas is a is a big area that I'm into. Uh, this Path of Souls book uh, that we did and that Andrew and I did in 2014 sort of uh, got into a lot of new territory. The idea of giants. Have you ever had anybody on your show talking about giants in the ancient world? Uh, and giants that were recovered from mounds. Andrew, actually, and we had him yeah. here briefly mentioned. To you, Other yeah. than that, no. fa fascinating, fascinating. I, you know, the the Smithsonian back in the 1800s, uh, they had a thing called the Bureau of the Mount of Mound Surveys, uh, and it was part of the Bureau of Ethnology, uh, the old Bureau of Ethnology before it came became the Bureau of American Ethnology. And in the 1800s, late 1800s, the Smithsonian was forced by the U.S. Congress to begin to excavate in Indian mounds. And they excavated 2,000 mounds. And out of those, a lot of the mounds had no burials in them at all. But they were mainly looking for skulls and artifacts that they could display in the Smithsonian Museum uh, in Washington. That's what they were after. But they found uh, in their official report they described pulling out and excavating 17 very large skeletons, uh, seven feet to eight feet in height. Uh, that's a lot, by the way. And people think that there's a lot of tall people in the world. There are not. Uh, there aren't that many seven-footers. The actual statistical odds today, uh, it's one of every 150,000 people approximately are truly seven feet tall. So it's very rare. Uh, they believe that the Smithsonian only pulled out of those, excavated a few thousand skeletons. And out of those, 17 of them were seven footers. But even in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, and even more recent than that, uh, excavations done in mounds have recovered many more seven to eight foot tall skeletons they are always in a type of mound known or usually in a type of mound known as adena era there are tall conical mounds uh some of them are like 70 feet tall and they they're called conical because you think of the top of an ice cream cone mm -hmm. um usually they're burial mounds uh very elaborate and ornate details within them uh and one that was uh, evaluated by archaeologists in 2009 uh, was eight feet, five inches tall, a skeleton from it. Wow. 
So they're all from these Adena mounds, and archaeologists have always been very certain that these very tall people were shaman. Mm. They were the shaman and the medicine man. They're not, and so there's a hereditary link to it. Uh, there's been a lot of genetic testing that used to be done on skeletal remains removed from American mounds. All of that ended, well, all of the excavations in the mounds ended in 1990. Uh, with the passing of a law called NAGPRA, N-A-G-P-R-A, which is Native American Grave Repatriation Act. Uh, and it made it illegal for to display Native American skeletons, burial goods, or to dig into burials, which is probably a good thing. Uh, so there's a real, there's a real, they're a real enigma, these giants. Now, if you actually, the Smithsonian denies it all today, and there are skeptics that will tell you that uh, it's all nonsense, that none of it was found, that it's all an exaggeration, an elaborate hoax. But, I mean, there's loads of reports from the first explorers into the Americas that talked about these giants. Uh, Hernando de Soto ran into two that his uh, four chroniclers really detailed. Uh, they were both over seven feet tall. One of them was a father. The other was either a son. They're not sure if it was a son or it was a cousin of his, uh, but they don't know. Uh, but they were well over seven feet in height. Uh, but all the explorers into early Florida and along the East Coast and into South America, Magellan ran into eight to ten foot people uh, wow. in Patagonia. And, I mean, there were loads of them. They were all exterminated. And the, a person who documented the final extermination of these giants, believe it or not, was one Charles Darwin. Oh, who was okay. in Darwin was visiting Patagonia at the end of the extermination of the Tallucci and the Ona tribes, which were the giants in extreme South America which is um, in Tierra del Fuego, the, the large triangular island. Uh, so they were exterminated. And since they don't exist today, they were all killed off, and that lineage was killed off. Skeptics will tell you, oh, they never existed. It's all an exaggeration. Mm. Uh, but genetics are showing us that the ancient world was not what we thought it was. Uh, there, our book with Andrew that comes out in a month, a little over a month, is called Denisovan Origins. And the word Denisovan, the Denisovans were discovered in 2010. Uh, and initially, it was simply a finger bone they found. Then they started finding more and more. And they're called Denisovans because they were found in a cave in Siberia called the Cave of Dennis. It was named after the guy that lived in it called Dennis. Wow. wow. So, Lucky guy. <laughs> Since then, they have found more evidence of them in lots of places. This is a type of uh, human that is not a modern human like us, that is actually a contemporary with the Neanderthals, that existed at least 800,000 years ago mm. and interbred with the Neanderthals and also interbred with modern humans until they all died out uh, around 30,000 years ago. Now, there are tests you can take to see if you have Denisovan and Neanderthal DNA. I actually have a lot of Neanderthal DNA in me, which my what more than 85% of wow. the population 
My wife says that explains a lot. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 my wife yeah, says the same thing. Yeah, the <laughs> were actually more, uh, were a lot smarter and a lot more um, innovative and artistic than anybody ever believed. Thank you. Why, you know, so many, there are several TV shows, and we're not going to call any of them out, because, I, you know, some of them I'm huge fans of, that seem to tend to make these ancient civilizations look like morons, you know? Yes, yeah. And look, I mean, what modern Homo sapiens have been around for thousands, thousands and thousands of years, right? But they didn't have distractions like uh, plumbing and heating and air conditioning and artificial <laughs> light, you know, and cell phones, right. you know. So they they had the time and the wherewithal uh, to figure things out in ways that. Uh, you were talking about that system like we don't flirt with the standard model of physics in, in physics. Oh, yeah. You know, and in this system, they have to be A, stupid, <laughs> and, and, and B, how could they possibly have tools? You know, that's part of the uh, Denisovan thing. Yes. You know, they had jewelry, which required tools to make. Amazing jewelry. Yeah. And, and um, you know, we... Are talking to a guy in a couple of weeks who had a couple of tribes um, from 17,000 years ago in parts of Sierra Leone in Africa. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of I'll the tribe. Name name. Yeah, but they found in this uh, Sierra Leone area these statues, these little statue figures. Yeah. But they found very similar ones. The the, uh, the Gon, Dogon tribe. Dogon tribe. Yeah. Yeah, the Dogon. There was another tribe about six or seven hundred miles away, mm -hmm. different tribe, different community, different, completely different area in that part of Africa, still kind of right. north, northwest, I guess, uh, that had almost the same kinds of statues. Yeah. And uh, there were stones, these very rare minerals that came from the sky, the sky blue things that uh, most of our. Um, Geologists can't figure out what they're made of, where they came from. They don't seem like they're from Earth. Uh, so that was a very unusual thing. But the similarities with these two tribes, sometimes in a hundred years or so apart, or even a thousand years apart, could come up with the very same things, these little statuettes. They've got a, a guy like that. But it, it just shows the intelligence of these people. And I, I, I thank you for pointing out when you're talking about uh, ancient civilizations or, or indigenous groups, uh, their heart, their intelligence, their uh, um, innate ability. My wife wanted me to ask you, you know, I mean, the Romans had plumbing. They, yeah. they, they had toilets. They had <laughs> homes. They had all these systems. And, and uh, that disappeared, <laughs> you know, for, for eons, <laughs> yeah, thousands of years. And, and she wanted to know, uh, what happened in between and why there are so many cultures that for some reason go out of their way to destroy the history of some groups, you know, for their own means. So it makes it harder for us to figure out what's going on. Well, I think one thing, one thing that does happen is disease can ravage a, a civilization and literally take it back to the dark ages very quickly. Imagine what would happen to us if suddenly uh, there was a uh, an electromagnetic pulse and all of our electricity went out for, say, a year. 
<laughs> oh, that was devastating. <laughs> yeah, right. That, there are a lot. Of, I could survive. I mean, and, until somebody would take away what I had and kill me. Yeah. Uh, because I know I'm old enough, and I was in Boy Scouts, and I've lived outside, and I've been able. I could fend for myself. I know how to grow things. But there's a lot of people alive today that would have no idea at all. How no to idea survive. at all what to do. Yeah. Yeah. They don't even notice the things but around them or the it, magic. The real yeah. things about the elements that you know, are, are just so vital that yeah. we are completely out of our uh, realm now. Well, this whole idea that the ancients weren't very smart, one of the things archaeologists have always argued is that they did not have the ability to cross oceans. That's why they've all, everybody has looked, that's why Americas are the new world and everything else is the old world. Mm-hmm. That they couldn't, that these ancient people couldn't walk out of Africa for a long time. Then they couldn't walk out of the Middle East for a long time. Then they couldn't make it to Europe and they couldn't make it to uh, the Far East and to Siberia. That it took them thousands and thousands of years to do it because they didn't have the ability to travel in boats. Yet, Mainstream archaeology also said, well, somewhere around 50,000 years ago, people seem to have gotten these little boats and made it to Australia well, and yeah, New they, Zealand. They've excavated, you know, now we have the ability and they're finding, yes. you know, a Scottish uh, uh, descendant in, in the Mayan. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> absolutely. So so here's where it gets real. All this gets really strange about the Denisovans and Neanderthals. And all. first of all, a lot of Neanderthal Lloyd scouts skeletons have been found in North America. Mm-hmm. Archaeologists will tell you no Neanderthals have ever been found. That is true, but Neanderthaloids, which is Neanderthal-like, never tested to see if they were Neanderthals were found, and all those skeletons are now gone. Uh, we tried to follow wow. up on one. Uh, we were 25, to, 25 years too late to figure out what it was, uh, the Chicago Museum uh, Senate for repatriation, so it was reburied. But in South America, for example, there are sites where people came over, probably from the South Pacific, an ocean voyage from the South Pacific, the area around New Zealand or Melanesia or Micronesia. Somehow they got to South America probably 300,000 years ago. These are people that were either Neanderthals or Denisovans or combinations of the two. Mm -hmm. That is the most likely. They probably then died out over time. They were unsuccessful in the Americas. And then again, more groups of them came over around 150,000 years and then again 50,000 years ago. So I hate to say this because North American archaeologists want the prize of we were first. That's actually, I'm using that term, and it comes from South American archaeology textbooks. South American archaeologists say Americans want to say we were first like it's a prize. Right, yeah, yeah. So and that's, again, oh, the standard model of physics. Yes, cats come down from Siberia. And okay, if they did it in the last ice age, they got these boats and they hugged the coast. But they hit North America first, hugging the coast, and eventually got to South America. But that's probably... I mean, that's just not the truth. The evidence is very clear. Mainstream South American archaeology, which American archaeologists hate and ignore and dismiss and put down and ridicule over and over. 
There are loads of sites down there that date to 50,000 years ago. There are two sites that go to 300,000 years ago. There's over 50 sites that go to 50,000 years ago. There's only one. There's two in North America. Well, three in North America that I'm aware of where claims have been made that it's 50,000 years ago or earlier. One of those was recently in California, coastal California, went to 133,000 years ago. Wow. Another one was in the, that same area of California near San Diego. That one was dismissed, but that one went back to 200,000 years ago. And then there is the Topper site, which a South Carolina archaeologist says might go back to 50,000 years. And I believe those were people that came up from South America, but it was an unsuccessful place they went. So it's all this. I mean, there's so much coming it's out. Like, everything we know is wrong. You must be a fan of the old fire sign theater. You have oh, to yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Nick, Jane, Nick Danger. I had my Nick Danger album. Yeah. <laughs> They had an album called Everything You Know you Is know Wrong. Is wrong. Yeah, I have that one too. <laughs> that is exactly what we've been fed with archaeology for years. They didn't necessarily know it, uh, and they just had this, this mainstream view that they all accepted as truth. And the best, way, the best example of it is what archaeologists said when they discovered the pre-Clovis, that pre-Clovis people were here. Clovis is the group of, of, of um, tool makers and point makers that made this distinctive point with fluted sides called Clovis. They were supposedly the first people, and Clovis first was the theory that they came over around 9,600 B.C. They were the first people. And when archaeologists dug down and found a Clovis layer, they stopped digging. And as the archaeologists said, well, we knew there couldn't be anything below it, so why waste the time and energy to go deeper? You don't look for what you don't believe in or exact quotes that archaeologists made. They went back later and started digging at sites where they had earlier stopped at Clovis, and they were astonished. They found more and more and more and went down further and further. But I mean, that, and they call themselves a science. Now, archaeology uses scientific methods, but that's about it. Everything else is absolute conjecture and it's guesswork, and they can build an entire culture from one little piece of pottery that they find, which wow. I find just absurd. Uh, yeah, right. I got I, a quick, quick question oh, for you because I know your books do very well in Australia and New Zealand. So I got to hit you with this one. It will probably require some speculation or you could say I simply don't know. But it was very interesting because the Aborigines, had, there, there's an area in Australia that is almost inha uninhabitable. It's very, very hard to get to. But it wasn't thousands and thousands of years ago. And the Aborigines believed that they were the first man. It didn't come from Africa. It came from Australia. And they say that there is uh, proof of this in this area that is, you know, like a, a, a death trap. Yeah. Uh, to, to, uh, but, but thousands and thousands of years ago it wasn't, and that's where man first came. Any speculation on I, that? What I will say is this. I have heard of that. I don't know any definite research that indicates that true is true, but I can tell you that in there are two tribes in the Brazilian Amazon that genetically are identical to Australian Aborigines. Wow, And they're population Y by the 
uh, geneticists, I'm not talking about archaeologists, the geneticists, sure. and they're absolutely clueless how they got there, but they obviously wow. got there by coming over. Their ancestors came over a long, long time ago, and their ancestors avoided contact with everybody else. Hmm. That's why their genes or their genetic trace remains relatively pure because they've avoided contact. You know, you, we see this when I was in, in, when I was in elementary school and in high school, I remember now and then, uh, news would come on and they'd show how in Brazil, in the Amazon, they discovered a tribe that had never seen white people before, had never (laughs) seen civilization. And so that would make the news. And then National Geographic in those days, when people actually got the printed magazine, they'd have Somebody go in and take pictures of them and all that. But a lot of those tribes still exist today, and they avoid contact with yeah. us, which is yeah. probably a very smart thing. Yeah, I can't blame them at all. <laughs> wow. That, thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Tim? Uh, I'm lost for words, man. This has been a great I'm still, show. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, st- I'm still uh, crying. All right. I've got one for you then. Because... Um, I, I wanted your opinion, if you have one, on carbon dating. Yeah. Uh, because I, I've seen some uh, a couple of shows where, you know, some things have been dated 10,000 years from now. You know? yeah. and, and they're talking about, I, I don't know, it's something about the re- mo- uh, molecular reactions in some of these uh, stones yeah. when they carbon date them or something that can run errant. But the you know, but that the the uh, margin of error, you know, has to be something uh, phenomenal, yeah. large. Um, and uh, do you think we're improving it uh, when you? Because look, you're working in in places where things can be carbon dated to hundreds of thousands of years ago, or sixty thousand years, seventeen thousand years, and be spot on. We had we did car we had carbon dating done. I collected the samples and sent them off in several sites in the Bahamas when we were doing research there. And actually, people say all the time, "Well, you can't carbon date stone." Well, you can carbon date um, car- uh, carbonate stone, which would be limestone and what's called beach rock, mm. because it forms and it gets organic material within it. So we had a lot of that carbon dated. We had. Uh, limestone anchors that we pulled out of the Bahamas carbon dated. So here's a couple of things with carbon dating. First of all, uh, you really can't carbon date earlier than 50,000 years ago. It just can't be done. That's as far as it goes. Anything else you see that goes before 50,000 years ago is done with uh, luminescence dating or uranium thorium dating, which is different from carbon dating. Uh, there's also a couple of other things that can be done that are still somewhat experimental. Uh, archaeologists don't like uranium thorium dating or luminescence because both of them yield. You, they find that's how you find really <laughs> old dates, and they don't like to find yeah, them. Yeah, it breaks that back beyond again, that thousand years. Yeah. So okay, with with carbon dating. Uh, radioactivity, particularly from all that nuclear testing that went on in the 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, it, it threw up a lot of uh, radiation, and that radiation can get into trees and can get into anything that's living. It can also get in the ocean, and it can sink and be incorporated into uh, limestone beach rock mm. or uh, wood, 
anything that you're trying to carbon date. So that can throw off the date. So when you send something in for carbon dating, they require that you tell them the exact location because they have tried to compensate for the amount of radiation that they know has come into the Bahamas since the 1950s, for example. Mm -hmm. Or if you get it from, say, Missouri, they might know how much has come in Missouri from prior testing. So they try to adjust it, and they call those calibrated dates. So it depends on where you are in the world. And the more I got to look at that, the more I realized that uh, they're all, it's, it's fairly accurate, it can be dead on accurate, and they've actually tested it with things that they know the exact age of some items, for mm-hmm. example, yep. like leather from a thousand years ago that was right. passed along, and they've carbon dated it, so they can tell exactly if it's correct or not. Uh, but with some other things in retesting, they realize there's a massive margin of error, and that margin of error could be plus or minus 10, 15,000 years, depending on where it is. When we were in the Bahamas, uh, I got into this carbon dating and got into a debate with a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey who had had carbon dating done uh, on uh, rock, on uh, limestone, beach rock in the Bahamas. And they do a type of beach rock dating called bulk dating, where you take a whole bunch of rock and grind it down and you send that in. But the problem is it's so large. Uh, and you come up with an average date of everything in it. So it's got all the old stuff in it, all the yeah, new stuff, new stuff. <laughs> any radiation that might have happened from fallout that has occurred from all of these this testing. But the testing changed things rather dramatically. Uh, and But radiocarbon dating is the best thing that we got for anything that's 50,000 years old or less. So other than that, there's like I said, there's uranium-thorium dating, uh, that and thermoluminescence is what's been done uh, in the uh, South America and in Mexico at sites. And a lot of that dating that goes to 300,000 years or so or 250,000 years, there's sites there. And all those were dated with those, with those more advanced technologies, not carbon dating. Uh, and that, that that's yet another field that you're in and uh, that you have to <laughs> these well, mountains have to, to climb that are almost insurmountable and you're finding ways around them. You're finding loopholes around them. You, and you really it takes a lot of work and a lot of study. And the truth is, you just can't believe everything. Don't believe what I tell you. People can go and, and check it out, see what we've written or see what we say and check it out. And I can be wrong. I've been wrong about a lot of things before, and I'm sure I will be again. Well, look, I... you're, you're married almost 40 years, so of course exactly. you're wrong. <laughs> That's my job. My job is to be wrong, you know? <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely right. Hey, 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 Greg, I got a question about limestone. In the paranormal field, it, the theory is that limestone holds some sort of memory. Uh, yeah. Is that... Uh, anywhere accurate in, in science? I, I, I can't. I'm not. I don't know enough about it to say. I can. I can tell you. I have heard people say that um, the Great Pyramid, which of course is most of the stone in it, is limestone. People mm-hmm. talk about the granite, yeah, in the in the King's Chamber and all, but almost all of it's limestone. Uh, that it's a repository of knowledge, and the knowledge right. is somehow. Uh, incorporated into the structure of the stone. Crystals, for example, uh, which are stone in a way, mm-hmm. uh, those can contain knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are computers being built using crystals to hold the 
knowledge within them to put to incorporate the z- all the zeros and ones in them. Uh, there's lots of people in this uh, in the new age field that believe that crystals uh, contain a great deal of energy and knowledge. I know they contain energy, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but there's a lot of knowledge incorporated. When people mm-hmm. can't see all the things you guys are doing and holding <laughs> up the as we talk, um, so that that's stops me now and then. Uh, but no, beyond that, I can't. I can't say. I will say this: you you immediately brought to mind one of Edgar Casey's saying. Mm-hmm. Edgar Casey, of course, the probably the greatest psychic in American history, father of American uh, of holistic health. The American Medical Association called him that, by the way. Mm-hmm. But wow. Casey believed that everything that occurred created a vibration, mm-hmm. uh, and in physics, that would be considered true. But Casey yeah. believed that that vibration was uh recorded uh people ca- he called it the akashic record mm-hmm. right which sounds you know ethereal and you know like it's woo woo uh, no no but- we love it here man. <laughs> we love what we're here <laughs> physics would say that you know these vibrations carry on forever mm-hmm. uh so casey said that everything is recorded in these vibrations and it has an effect. Everything affects everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it never goes away, per se, and it is recorded. And so that's how Casey did his psychic readings. He would go into this trance state and then able to go to this record and read the vibrations. Uh-huh. Uh, and he would see it uh, symbolically sometimes in a library and having a, a Akashic record book handed to him. Uh, but, uh, I believe that everything is recorded. Yeah. I think everything somehow, and I don't mean there's some guy up there recording everything. I do no, believe no. that waves of energy that we put out and everything we say and do has an effect. And that effect lasts essentially forever. Yeah. yeah. We've got some people, um, uh, I've had a couple of people on uh, shameless self-promotion. Sorry. Tip, <laughs> kindest beyond the veil Monday's right here on this very network. In fact, <laughs> we'll have Dr. Greg on on September 23rd, which is 20 days after the release of the new book. Um, but I want it because Edgar Mitchell, uh, Six Man to Walk the Moon, you know, yeah. came back a changed man. And I wanted to kind of address this vibration a little differently. You were talking about subtle forces earlier and how they're more and more recognized. He actually has this quantum holographic theory. <laughs> You know, that consciousness is part of that vibration, that consciousness is actually not necessarily an energy form, but some sort of subtle force that can impact energy or matter. A so, field. Uh, yeah, basically, <laughs> but they're not using that word because they don't want to get laughed out of the physics community. Yeah. You've got astrophysicists that are actually working on this to try to prove consciousness is an energy form, and that kind of goes along the lines of this vibration that Tesla was all about. Yeah, frequency, mm-hmm. vibration, uh, you know, it says you learn more if you study those things and we'll learn in 50 years with that. Right. I've had a theory for years that it, that sounds crazy, but I believe that when you turn an automobile on or when you turn a computer on or when you turn your light switch on, that that electromagnetic field that you're creating has a form of consciousness it's something that we don't recognize, but I believe there's a f- electromagnetic field. We all know that's true, and that there are waves that are involved with it. Yeah. 
exactly. There you go. Keep the motorcycles out of your room there. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. uh, But I believe there's a form of consciousness to that. Yeah. I think when you turn it off, the f- that consciousness is shut off. Yeah. Uh, but when you turn it on, I think it comes on again. I do believe that that See, is true. That's why I don't have sense. a smartphone. I, mm-hmm. I, holding something radioactive up to my head for 300 bucks a month, yeah, I'd rather have a prostitute in Chernobyl, <laughs> you know? I'd, I'd get more out of it. <laughs> hey, I'd pay 100 bucks for mine. I'm yeah, like, he's got his. <laughs> well, I'm not commenting on that. I'm not sure what the result would be there. <laughs> yeah, there'd be some great energy for at least a few minutes, you know? Uh, but with, with that said, yeah, Native, Native Americans believe that rocks have a form of consciousness. Right. Oh, see, I believe that too. I Please do. Everything has a form of consciousness because it is part of the spiritual world. And their use of the term spiritual is not woo woo. It, it's, no, not, it's not, no, it's just, it is, it is something that recognizes that it is primordial it is the primordial essence of everything. Mm-hmm. That is, what feel is the word. You, know, you can feel it when you stand under a tree. You can feel that. You, you can feel that energy. Yeah. It's, a, it's a living thing. Yeah. You know, you can, As a paranormalist, and this is a little strange, and I don't know if I told you this, Timmy. My, when my wife and I used to go out, we used to go out and open fields and stuff, and we could right. still get information because everywhere you go, somebody has lived or died. You know, I mean, it, it's there everywhere. And looking at that in that way. But every time we went near willow trees, we always found Native American spirits of some kind that weren't necessarily happy to see us European looking people. <laughs> but there was but it was consistent, you know. So yeah. there's something about that willow tree that still has essence to them. And I think we always have to honor their history and understand their culture rather than just dismissing it as primitive or, you know, what do they know? We're better than they are. They lost the war type well, of thing. You know, you, what this thing about dismissing them, I mentioned earlier, this is a, it's a, it's a weird way I'm going to go somewhere, but I mentioned the laws changed in 1990 with that NAGPRA law and it changed archeology. span uh, They weren't allowed to go out and just do willy nilly excavations into burials anymore. And they weren't allowed to test uh, skeletons or do any kind of research on the skeletons anymore. So a group of archeologists started meeting every year at Texas State University in this conference and what they decided to do was to figure out what the symbols meant and the iconography meant on all of these artifacts that had been pulled out of Indian mounds, such as uh, a serpent with feathers, the feathered serpent, which is, you know, everybody's heard of that. Mm-hmm. You've probably seen the symbol somewhere. It's a real common Native American symbol. It's also sure. seen in Central and South America. Yeah, India. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is a symbol of a eye in a, in a hand or a palm of the hand. Actually, I just, I'll just cut to the chase on that. The eye is Messier 42 or Orion's nebula, and the hand is shown because it's a wrist that has been, a hand that's been severed at the wrist dangling in the sky. And the three belt stars of Orion is what's holding, is the edge of the wrist, and then the eye is Orion's nebula. That's what that symbol is. There's been 
There's around 50 artifacts pulled out of Indian mounds that have this iron hand symbol on it. Uh, And it's very odd that they found them. And they know now all these great artifacts that they found that were in real good shape were spiritual artifacts used in rituals. That's why they were there. They weren't common household. So they held a lot of these artifacts held hallucinogens in them, hallucinogenic drugs such as psilocybin. Uh, there were other, the black drink they used in some of them, which, uh, that's something I've wanted to try the black. Oh, yeah. drink. Hey, there's another road trip. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, so they had their other symbols were a skull, a skull that had what looked like fire or lightning coming out of it. I tell the story in the path of souls of going to Spiro, Oklahoma's mound site, uh, which has a museum and in there, the, the head of the museum, I asked him offhand, what does that mean, this skull with this, what looks like lightning coming? I said, oh, that's like a speech box in a cartoon. <laughs> and I said, really? And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, you don't think it means something else? And I threw out what the archaeologists had, had now were saying. And he said, no, I don't believe in any of that. He said, we don't know what any of this means. It's a speech box. But anyway, there's that symbol of this skull that has has fire coming out of it. That's that life soul coming in. It's the life soul and the free soul separating. So the free soul is like the fire coming out of the skull. Uh, there are symbols of a scorpion. There are symbols of um, what is called a water panther uh, or a water tiger. Some of the uh, some of the tribes would call it. Uh, all kinds of snakes and so on. They're symbols of raptor birds, mainly eagles, and they're very, very ornate. So they decided they were going to figure out what all this stuff meant. Uh, And it was called the uh, Southeastern Mississippi Iconography Conference, where they were trying to figure out the Mississippian era of mound builders and what in the heck they were doing. And so they worked out this path of souls idea through the symbols. And then they went back. This is where it gets weird. They went back and decided to look at the books that were published in the 1800s and 1700s by ethnographers who'd actually talked to the natives then, who told them all this stuff. And none of it was digitized and on the Internet. Archaeologists had dismissed it all and said, oh, it's all nonsense, it's mythology. And because it's not on the internet and it's not digitized, modern researchers, they don't look at anything unless it's on the internet. We even had a we even had producers tell us if you're not on the internet, you don't exist. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, and nothing to everything has to be there. So it's a new they, day and age, man. So they worked this whole thing out about the soul, the two souls and one soul having to make the leap to this Orion's nebula. And then it sunk below the horizon and went around and under the earth during the daytime. The next night it emerged and then you'd see Orion on the other horizon, the eastern side. And then the soul would jump out of this. It's a it's an ogi. The the term ogi is spelled O G E E. It means portal, opening, or door. But it's a slit in the sky that the soul would be tucked into while it went through the underworld during the daytime and came up on the other side of the sky. It then hopped to the Milky Way, and they saw the Milky Way as souls making a journey. Mm -hmm. back to the source 
there were trials and tribulations as they moved on this path, the path of souls, uh-huh. and eventually they reached a break, a split in the Milky Way in the north where they hit this huge raptor bird that was a judge. This judge judged them not based upon their goodness as we would think of it, but did they serve their tribe? Hmm. Did they help the people in their community? Did they show reverence to enemies when they might have killed an enemy? Did they show reverence to animals and to food when they ate it? Did they show reverence to the spiritual world? If they passed the test, they were then allowed to go through this final portal, which was probably the star Deneb, which was the North Pole Star 18,000 years ago. This is all real key. Yeah, that's right. The sky was different back then. And yes. go to the other world. If uh-huh. they didn't pass the test, they were either blotted from existence, and in these old descriptions, they had a very detailed description of how they blotted the soul from existence. They would smash the brain hmm. and almost like it was almost like sucking the brain out. They knew the brain, the memories, uh, and this whatever the, the this free soul was, Mm. was in the brain, they pulled it out and literally destroyed it, blotted it out of existence. However, some souls could be redeemed and they were cast back to earth to be reincarnated. They believed in reincarnation. Wow, Wow, no kidding. That's awesome. Now, uh, some could also be cast to the underworld. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, the other piece of that, it's just very complicated. The other piece, then why were some natives, these shaman, put in these tombs, elaborate tombs, and they weren't cremated? Because they believed in order for this to take place, your all your bones had to be cremated and ground down and returned to the soil. Otherwise, you'd be trapped and stuck around your body. In order to be released to the sky, you had to take the body and you had to return it to the soil. You had to cremate it. So that's why so many were cremated. Those that were left in the tombs, there was a hope of re- of that exact person reincarnating back oh. into that body. Oh, wow. That's kind of like a da- Dalai Lama kind of thing, but that yeah, was weird. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Also parallels ancient Egypt a lot. of the, You mentioned right. the Orion Nebula and the Sirius. There was, a, I think it was ancient aliens, they had a thing about uh, tribes, ancient uh, civilizations that, that believed that the God came from Sirius B. And we didn't even discover Sirius B until like the mid-1800s. I don't know when we discovered that Orion Nebula, the my ignorance has well, no can, idea. It's easy to see. You can see Orion's Nebula any night if you go out. Not any night, but almost every night. Okay. Uh, it's if you see the three belt stars... It's depending if it's on the eastern horizon when you see Orion, it'll be above them. If it's on the western horizon, Orion's nebula will be below. And it's just a fuzzy little sort of reddish dot, and, but it's fuzzy, but it's very visible. Wow. But it, it just seems that they had such understandings, and there's some more proof as we go along that their understanding of our, our astronomy <laughs> was, you know, too. yeah, thousands of years uh, ahead of us. 
and they yeah. believed that actual beings. I, I, my wife does not like all the ancient alien stuff, but there are many na- Native American tribes, and in their ancient lore and mythology, mm-hmm. we were visited by beings from the stars. They didn't call them other worlds. They didn't right. call them aliens. Yeah. They talked about beings from other stars that visited here. Some of them were benevolent. Some of them were not. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, some of them were giants. They have a lot of lore about these giants that I've talked about. Mm-hmm. The giants became the leaders of them. The giants became corrupted in the most consistent mythology that's in all those old books from the 1800s and 1700s and all those old books were generated by ethnographers like schoolcraft who were employed by the federal government to go and try to get as much information from the tribes religious and spiritual leaders as they could and there's incredible amount i have i started buying those books years ago they're very expensive uh and right now most of them still aren't digitized or online so you have to go to the original ones but the the amount of detail in those books is just unbelievable uh, and it's stuff that that our mainstream scientists, the archaeologists, <laughs> just yeah. ignored for yeah. for hundreds, hundreds of, years, of years. That stuff's been ignored. Yeah, I go back to Darwin on that. Actually, his cousin, because his cousin was mad at the work he did and started this thing called eugenics. Yes. Yeah. yeah well, that also that's another thing. There's uh, both in our new book, Denise of Origins. There are a couple of. Um, a couple of sections that talk about eugenics. Really? Uh, starting around 1902, the Smithsonian became dominated by the eugenics movement. Mm-hmm. And that lasted until the 1930s. Wow. And to some extent, the denial of the Native Americans having a, say, really big people physically large people leading them i believe that's part of eugenics it's a way of denying that they were that some of them were physically superior to the europeans who came oh yeah in. yeah right. that, that that makes them outcasts right away <laughs> and same thing. skeptics will tell you none of these giant stories in south america are true they were all these european sailors like magellan and loads of british sea captains went down yep. and they all reported seeing these people that were seven to nine to ten feet tall they interacted with them they interacted with entire tribes over seven feet tall and modern people say oh no no they were all just of normal height and it's all an exaggeration and i think that is simply it is a subtle way to say they weren't special they weren't different they were no different than us but they say that it's racist if you bring this up wow so they say oh the, we're the racist people because we're saying that there were giants because oh the native americans obviously weren't the giants we're saying there were some europeans that were there and we're not mm-hmm. there weren't europeans these this was a group of people that was hereditarily defined. That's the way we define Europeans, for that matter, through heredity. Yeah, or yeah. Americans, it's yeah. it's all heredity. So you've got some uh, something about eugenics in your uh, uh, new yes. book, Denise of an Origin, which, by the yes. way, is coming out September third. Yes, September third. Yeah. We're very excited. Uh, it's 
I can't believe it. It's the first time I've ever seen one of our books make, become a number one bestseller in Amazon awesome. categories <laughs> months before it comes out. It makes no sense to me, although it's cheaper now than it will be then. Yeah. That's the only reason that I can figure. And I don't control any of that. That's the publisher. Well, for, to Timmy and I, it's, it's two people who seem to know what they're doing more than just about anybody else right. and, and is doing it. And when you guys do it together... I mean, it's magic. When you do it apart, it's magic. But this is the perfect time for this book. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, and, you know, Timmy, Timmy's like, uh, he actually drooled once I saw him. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great show. Um, the, the, you're the reason why we do these shows. Um, well, thank you. I have to give Andrew more credit. Andrew... Um, I can vividly recall when we were standing at uh, the Great Circle in Newark, Ohio, Andrew starting to talk about Gobekli Tepe. This was mm -hmm. 2003. Wow. And it was unknown then. People, no, almost nobody knew about it except the, archae the German archaeologists working at the site. Andrew had visited there. Yeah. But Andrew started talking about this site. And in my mind, it's going, what in the world <laughs> is he talking about this bizarre site in southeast Turkey for? Then he starts throwing out Cygnus which at the time I didn't yeah. and I said okay oh, all right now that's the northern cross native americans yeah. talk about the northern and it looks like a plus sign in this in the sky and there's there's artifacts that have a plus sign on it mm -hmm. and that's often the northern cross mm -hmm. so he's talking about this and he's going, oh, this thing was aligned, this site was aligned to Cygnus, and I think, uh, as far as I can tell right now, Cygnus was directly overhead when they used this this uh, eagle effigy to do their cremations, <laughs> and it was lined to the sunrise at the summer solstice, and the summer cell. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, what in the heck? This is more, than I, you know, I, I really wasn't into it. That was 2003. Right, but he's ahead of his time, just like Our you are. And you're finding ways to change your fields and to make them better and make them better for us going forward. But, it, you know, when he uh, he said, because I was always uh, serious. No, it's serious. Everybody, yeah. Everybody's serious. But he's the one that talked me out of it because he's that good, you know. When well, you're that good... Yeah, yes. you have to ask. It must be me then. Sirius <laughs> you know, is, is the brightest star in the sky. Now, with Cygnus, Deneb is the ninth. Deneb is the ninth brightest star in the sky. So it's important, but Sirius is the brightest star in the sky. And it is always, it's in a lot of lore. Uh, Orion, of course, is in the Bible. The Pleiades are in the Bible. All of those have. Uh, stories about them, but remember uh, when when we talked about the purpose of a lot of these alignments in these sites, which they would they would build these sites to use in rituals, so the sites could allow sight lines from one mound to another, so you could see certain stars rising and setting at very specific times, and you could see the sun and moon. in And the moon has this eighteen point six one year cycle. There are a lot of Native American sites that follow it the entire 18.61 years. Right. But all of these sites are made with these alignments in mind so they could conduct rituals at them. Okay. So, and again, it was Andrew that told me this. 
Andrew convinced me of Cygnus and it was 2006. And I, I made a video about it, which is on YouTube. It's called the Cygnus mystery, which is named after his book called the Cygnus mystery. It's on, had on a YouTube where, what I just looked up the Cygnus mystery, okay. uh, YouTube. It's got almost, uh, it's got, I think it's got 1.6 million views. Uh, so, it's it's been seen by a lot of people, but Andrew told me at the time he said you're the only person that understands this so far. <laughs> but I, I honestly had to really carefully read and digest his book called The Cygnus Mystery to understand it. But when I got it, it's like, oh my God, he's right. He's right. But yeah. it's so complicated. And it's so deep, and it goes against a lot of things people have accepted. For oh, it's example, kind of emasculating as a man who thinks he knows what's going on. <laughs> you know, I, kind of <laughs> reminds me of another friend of ours, Chip Thomas Fusco. I oh, think yeah, really right? the ones yeah. that understand the super geometric theory in his books. I mean, yeah. I can yeah. understand what, what Greg is you know, has yeah, gone but, through. But these guys, you know, I mean, uh, we we appreciate people that are ahead, ahead of their time. It it makes our show better to have yeah. them on. You know, we got three and, minutes, but you yeah, got to okay. get the closing comments. I'll let I'll let you take it. I'm trying to find a pen so I can write this <laughs> this mystery down. There you go. Um, hey, okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get contact information from you uh, about the books, uh, any events that you may be doing with Andrew. Upcoming, uh, uh, <laughs> or without? I'm on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> that Facebook has Facebook has um, all the websites that I'm affiliated. Not all of them, but most of the websites I'm affiliated with. And you have to put my full name in, including my middle name. And it is Gregory L, as in Lee Little. Gregory L Little, uh, and I will pop up there. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, uh, and that's Dr. Greg Little 2 on Twitter. And uh, apmagazine.info, apmagazine.info. I usually have an article in that every month, sometimes two or three. Uh, and everything in that is online, uh, loads and loads of articles on, on all of this. Uh, you can do a search on Amazon for my books. Just put my name in and a lot will pop up. You can go on, go into Google and put my, put in Gregory L. Little. And I think they have 40 books that are there, but they don't have them all. I actually have 60, 68 in that are out and in print. And I have one about to come out, but I'm not talking about that yet. So, but you can find me like that, but it's Gregory L. Little. Uh, there's a lot of Dr. Greg Littles. There's a lot of Gregory Littles. And there's a, a football player named Greg Little who, <laughs> so, who goes by the Twitter handle, the real Greg Little, which makes me feel <laughs> uh, I hope a, he's on your favorite team. You know? uh, actually, no, he was. He played for Ole Miss, which I'm Memphis. And oh, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, hated. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and we literally yeah. got a minute, Chip. Okay, uh, yeah, quick uh, shameless self-promotion uh, for my show, Kindness Beyond the Veil, every Monday from 7 to 9 p.m. here, uh, right here on WCET-FM. Our guest this week is Amy Robeson, who specializes in the Akashic Record. And I'm going to say it out loud, uh, Greg L. Little uh, is going to be my guest on September 23rd. And I want to officially invite your wife to come on the following week, because I have an opening on the 30th, which I'm offering... Uh, to her first and foremost. I'll ask her. Okay. Yeah. Thursday, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern. This week, we have Leon Beebe 
want to talk about uh, Adam Decoded. Uh, mm. Good stuff. Good stuff, yeah. So it's been looking forward to talking to Adam, or looking forward to talking to Leon Beebe. Uh, hopefully he shows up this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I'm sure he know. will, though. But it's, I'm looking forward to talking with him. Uh, Gregory's been great, man. It, uh, hey, thank yeah. you. I appreciate it very much. Uh, hang on and give me that address, and I'll send you. Yeah, some we can we, we can talk after the we'll show. We'll talk after the show, but I got uh, and this call. I'll call you guys right back after after I end the server. But uh, up, thank you guys. Uh, yeah, well, thank you. Up next, uh, the great Michael Vera for late night in the Midlands. Uh, up next yeah. at 9 p.m. Eastern. Good night, everybody. Yeah. Yep, we love you. Listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other. God, I love the station.